Well, good morning to everyone. It's a good morning. The last day of the feast, as they say. And I, uh, I can testify it's been a feast again this week to consider the works of God and to see God working in your lives, your testimony and your joy in seeking after God. Um, it's been a joy to teach and preach and to be a part of this. So I hope we can open our hearts and our ears again uh, this morning for another teaching. The title for today and subject is Music and Its Effect. And this is going to be a two-part um, teaching. I will have this session this morning and then this afternoon again the same subject on music. So it will be part one and part two, and I'm not sure how well I'll be able to divide it. I'll probably repeat myself on several points and so on. Um, but music affects us profoundly, for good or for ill. And my prayer would be that you are able to recognize what constitutes godly music and to be able to reject uh, what is wrong music and that which is not godly. I know that music has often been a controversial subject and perhaps still is. I wouldn't argue that it's a controversial subject, but many times it's based on or the conflict arises maybe partly because of a poor understanding of some of the elements of it and, and I'll admit it can be a bit complex, but in many ways it's not that complex. But we are bombarded with so many different things and so many different philosophies and some of it is simply an unwillingness to acknowledge that there is good and evil in music. One of my concerns and reasons why we are uh, talking of this subject is in Colossians 2 verse 3 and 4. He says, in whom, speaking of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. And if there's anything that that ever applied to, it certainly does to music. There are many enticing uh, claims, concepts, uh, philosophies out there concerning music. And they are deceiving people, beguiling them, those who are unwary or un, undiscerning. So today I'd like to give you some principles by which you can discern what is right and what is wrong. 
And just understand that God is very concerned about that. He has given us the tools we need to know and discern between good and evil. Between to judge between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. It was of great distress to God when his people could no longer distinguish. And while I know the scripture says, judge not, that ye be not judged, that has to do with an unrighteous or an unequal judgment. But rather we are called to discern and to judge whether something be right or whether it be wrong. And there is so much confusion in this matter of music. I'm going to be talking about contemporary Christian music. I don't know how familiar you are with that term. It is a term that is used to describe a lot of what is acceptable in the church today. It has, in its primary essence, it has to do with rock music, Christian rock. You may have heard that many times, but uh, that's a... Uh, contradiction of terms, but the more widely accepted term is CCM, Contemporary Christian Music, and while it is not only rock music, that is its primary um, component. It's a little hard to define. Some have asked me, well, so exactly what is CCM? And I would say this way, I can describe some of its characteristics. Um, we may touch a little more on that this afternoon, but the edges are a bit fuzzy. In other words, it has, it has many aspects to it and it reaches out into many different directions. And so to to define a boundary is a little bit difficult, but nevertheless, CCM is a widely accepted label, and it generally refers to that genre of music that has Christian in its name, but has a lot of worldly music put to it, and that is my concern. One of the reasons it's of concern is that across our land, the professing church of Jesus Christ has accepted this kind of music and even promoted and endorsed it to a large degree. And while there are a few here and there that are strongly resisting it, they are more and more in the minority. And I, I hope and trust that for many of you, your parents have taught you otherwise and that you have taken a stand against the influences of this music. One of the problems, though, it's not just that we reject rock music and so we're done dealing with CCM. What I see has happened and is maybe of particular concern for all of you here today is while you may reject the, uh, the blatant and more uh, open aspects of CCM, many of these artists and songwriters write uh, songs that 
are then copied by people who may not take all of the music, but they listen to the, the songs, the lyrics, and, and sing them and repeat them. Well, the problem isn't so much that maybe that particular song is, is uh, false doctrine, although that's often part of it, or a twisting of doctrine, but there is an influence that comes in. I think of it this way, um, an illustration. One day, some years back, our neighbor uh, lady drove by our house, and which is an ordinary occurrence, but just down the road she stopped. And, well, that caught our attention. I mean, why is she stopping there beside the road? And she got out and walked into the ditch, which was right next to their hay field, and in the ditch there was several weeds blooming there, and she plucked several weeds, threw them on the ground, got back in her vehicle, and drove on. What? <laughs> it, it was just a bit strange, but it didn't take us long to connect the dots. Uh, this is a very practical lady, and I saw very quickly she was simply removing some weeds that would have been noxious and perhaps very damaging to their hay crop. But there's a lesson in that, and you know, she had little regard really for how the ditch looked. She was just that practical. I was assured that it was not beautifying the ditch she had in mind. Nor was she really concerned about this particular flower and how it might be appreciated in its own right. You know, I mean, after all, even weeds can have pretty flowers. That was irrelevant. The concern was the hay crop and the damage that this pernicious and noxious weeds would ultimately do to the hay crop. And I think it's a very apt illustration in this whole thing of contemporary Christian music and all of its influences. It spreads its tentacles here, there, and everywhere, its philosophies, its ideas, and we are so bombarded with it that it's difficult many times to even spot what is wrong. But my prayer today would be that I could give you some of the tools and we could just look at some of the principles that underlie this so that we can spot those weeds, whether they're in the ditch beside our hay crop or whether they're in the field, and prevent, if possible, from this just taking over the whole field and being able to see where these things lead and why they are to be rejected. A very important part of this, and it's in the illustration, but I'll just restate it too, is that we don't determine what is right and wrong simply based on what our feelings are or what we might enjoy, and particularly in music. That is one of the philosophies that the CCM crowd uh, emphasizes is, well, it's what you prefer. It's what you like. 
and that's all that matters. If you like this kind and style, fine. And if somebody objects to a certain style or type of music, oh, it's just because you have some different preference. Well, no, that's, that is a very unsafe way of determining whether something is right or wrong. I would like, especially in this first part, to emphasize the principles of good and godly music. And we'll take that from the Scriptures. The Scriptures has a good bit to say, and and I'll probably intertwine some of the errors that we see uh, related to that. But God does like music. He doesn't like all kinds of music, but he does like music, and he was the one who, uh, shall we say, designed it or invented it, created it, invented, that's not the right word, designed it, made it possible, gave us vocal cords that we could sing the praises of our God. Maybe we'll just, well, no, before I get into that, let me just speak a little bit about the, the issue of, of the effects of music. We live in a culture that has been so profoundly affected by music that we might almost not recognize how truly... Um, civilization changing this whole thing is but if you think back a hundred years which you weren't here I wasn't here but we read our history books before the advent of recorded music how would people have listened to music primarily by either generating it themselves opening their mouth and singing or playing some instrument or traveling or being present where someone else is doing it. There was no such thing as carrying it around in your pocket, listening to it when you wake up and when you lay down and when you walk by the way, unless you were generating it yourself. Well, that would be profitable if you were opening your mouth and praising the Lord, that's fine. But to have it piped in and you become entertained with music, and may I say, even good music, it should have its limits. In other words, if you are just constantly bombarded with music, even good music, what eventually happens is you begin to tune it out to a certain extent. And it just becomes something that fills space and time and actually uh, prevents you from thinking deeply about some things that you ought to ponder in silence and, and uh, not distracted. Let me, if I can find it here in my notes. A man by the name of David Tame wrote a book entitled The Secret Power of Music. And here is a short paragraph. 
He says, more than any other form of the misuse of sound, it is rock with which we must deal today. And he's referring specifically to rock music. So this is not not just a, a Christian perspective, but he says it is a global phenomenon, a pounding, pounding, destructive beat which is heard from America and Western Europe to Africa and Asia. Its effect upon the soul is to make nigh impossible the true inner silence and peace necessary for the contemplation of eternal verities. How true that is. Then he says, how necessary it is in this age for some to have the courage to be the ones who are different and to separate themselves out from the pack who long ago sold their lives and personalities to this sound. I adamantly believe that rock in all its forms is a critical problem which our civilization must get to grips if it wishes long to survive. Now that's just rock music out there with all its cultural effects. And it has been very destructive to society. And and the examples would be legion of how it has damaged and destroyed and, and, and wrecked the morals of our nation. But the fact that it's so widespread is, is amazing. This, and it's not just our nation. This sound has gone out throughout the whole earth. There is now, if you will, a global music, and it's called pop rock. You can hear it from every uh, corner of the globe. You will find it in the cities. You will find it in, in, uh, in culture. You'll find it in business. They play it in every store and, and gas station around the, around the world. And it is a common, common element that we are faced with nearly daily to the point that we're somewhat desensitized to its true effects. In other words, we have somehow, and even if we don't like it and resist it and all that we, as, as we should, it still has a desensitizing effect eventually when we just constantly hear it. Now, I'm sometimes shocked when I consider how how people have to live. I don't know how else to say it, but I recall being on a job site in, in, in the city and working on some apartment buildings, and somebody comes home from work. The car drives up, and as it's coming up the street, you hear this boom, 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 boom. And it gets louder and louder, and, and they pull in and, and the door opens, and, and it's just a pounding, discordant, and even angry-sounding music. Just, I mean, I hear it for these 15 seconds, and it it's, that sets you on edge. And car shuts off, music stops. Get out, silence, walk into the door, and I think to myself, what kind of a life will he have once he gets inside the door? Having that pounding 
angry sound as he as he drives down the street and comes to you know comes home is it going to be peaceful how can he relax i i mean i i don't understand but i suppose for many 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 that is just that's just normal life if i were to ask them what what effect this music is having on them they might Think I'm strange for even asking the question. Never stop to think what life could be like if they didn't have it. But the sad thing is that not only has the world been tremendously influenced by that, but many in the evangelical church have said, oh, that's fine. Let's just put in gospel words and some Bible principles. Bible ideas, and we can use the same music. Well, it's going to have the same effect. There's, you're not going to escape the effect of the music just by changing some of the words. All music has a message. Music is not neutral, as many would have you believe. Music... Even the very um, form of music has a message. No doubt about it. No mother in her sound mind would take these types of music I just described about this man driving home in his car. Would, they would not take that music to put their baby to sleep. They would sing lullabies. Lullaby has a message, that of peace, of rest, putting someone to, in a state of, of rest, not discordant, pounding, jarring kind of music. It's, it, uh, it just doesn't have the same effect, nor does the bar that intends to incite the passions of people sing lullabies, nor do they sing hymns. Totally different effect. Music has an effect. And it's not just the words, it's the content of the music that makes an effect. And we need to judge. We need to truly judge what effect the music is having on us. The music we allow, use, listen to, we need to try and judge honestly and accurately what effect is it having on us. Is it godly or not godly? Let's look at some uh, of the principles of godly music. I have a list here of, didn't really number them, I think it's five points here, not in any particular order. But the first one I have here is singing should be an expression of praise to the Lord. In fact, if you look at the scriptures, that is the primary emphasis given for singing. Is any among you merry? Let him sing. Speaks of a heart that is full of joy. 
That being Mary doesn't simply mean, as we might think of even merriment to the point of being silly. It means if your heart is full of joy, let uh, be singing. Singing is an expression of joy and rejoicing. Uh, David made that clear. David was known as the, uh, what was it, the sweet psalmist of Israel. He wrote many psalms which were often set to music. And this was what he said, Psalm 89, 1, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 95, 1 to 3, O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. Psalm 105, 1 to 4, O give thanks unto the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing unto him. Sing psalms unto him, talk ye of all his wondrous works. Glory ye in his holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face evermore. So singing should be an expression of praise to the Lord. And therefore, singing does not become a neutral thing. It's not a thing of entertainment. It should be an active engagement of our heart and mind to praise the Lord. Glorify His name. That should be the theme of our singing. Honor to the Lord. And one could multiply many, many passages in Psalms. In fact, just thinking of the Psalms in and of themselves. How they extol the name of the Lord. Bless his name. Praise his name. Do it in words. Do it in song. Let your heart rise up with these, with the voice of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. That's a characteristic of godly music. It's one of the main uh, reasons for music. Singing should be an expression of praise to the Lord. Second point, there should be teaching and admonishing in songs. Ephesians 5.19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Amen. Speaking to yourselves. There, there's a message. There's a communicating. There's a teaching and admonishing going on. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, I'm sure you've heard this many times, uh, but we should also consider that the music that we object to and should reject is also teaching us. And that's one of the reasons why it is so dangerous. There are philosophies that are taught in some of these songs, uh, just false 
philosophies. They sound good. And when set to music, they have a way of capturing the heart, if you will. And they become some of these beguiling uh, and enticing words. Let's steer clear of that. But understand that when we sing, when we have hymns in church, we are teaching. We are admonishing one another. There's a message being presented. Third point I have is that the message should be clear and easy to understand. And let's turn to 1 Corinthians 14. I want to read several verses there. 1 Corinthians 14. In this chapter, the main topic he's addressing there is speaking in tongues and by extension the gifts of the Spirit and But he's giving some direction, and in that context, he says some things about music, about singing. One of the main points that he's making in this chapter is the importance of what we do in church is to edify the body. And he's contrasting that with the lack of edification that this speaking in tongues was um, there was a problem, and he was addressing that. Let's read here in verse 6. It says, Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you, except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine? And even things without life giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? So even things without life, a musical instrument needs to have a distinction in the sound if it's going to communicate something. How much more should our words be communicating some clear message? He says, so likewise, verse 9, except ye utter by the tongue words easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? For ye shall speak into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of voices in the world, and none of them is without signification. Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian, and he that speaketh shall be a barbarian unto me. Even so, ye, forasmuch as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful." And again, the main uh, principle that he's he's, um, presenting here is the importance of it to be for edification, and therefore it needs to clearly be understood. Then verse 15 he says, What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. 
I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. The message should be clear and easy to understand. Wow, that would cut out a wide swath of CCM music if it had to be clearly understood. There are several problems with a lot of the CCM music, and that is, one, their message, if you actually could hear the lyrics, the message is very unclear. And there's some intent in that, in that they don't like sound doctrine. And therefore, they don't want to speak of that. They want to speak of an inclusive Everybody, anybody that calls in the name of the Lord is fine. The Bible tells us very clearly that's not so. Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom. But there is a very, very strong ecumenical message. And so, some of the harder issues, such as sin and salvation, repentance, very, very little if any, is ever said about those subjects. And so, the message, if you could actually understand the words, is sometimes very vague, very um, generalized to the point of not really saying anything. Secondly, if it's to be clearly understood, then it must not be obscured by the music. The music should not distract from the words in any way. It should enhance the words. It should be a means of making it clear. So if the volume is so loud that you can't even understand the words and... and, uh, while I've not been to concerts uh, as such. I've certainly heard tapes and albums and so on where the music was very loud and the lyrics were almost undistinguishable. And the many, many testimonies of those who go to concerts uh, say that oftentimes uh, the music is so loud that you can't even hear the lyrics. Well, there's a big problem. The message should be clear and easy to understand. Point number four. Our spirit and mind should be engaged, not bypassed. Very important in in the passage we just read there in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15. What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. So godly music should have our spirit and mind engaged, not bypassed. And the previous point about it being clear and easy to understand is very important if we're going to engage our spirit and our mind. For example, if you think about David and the Psalms that he wrote and his encouragement to sing unto the Lord, sing unto the Lord a new song, sing praises to the Lord, was his mind engaged? Was his spirit engaged? Yes, without a doubt. 
he clearly engaged his mind to extol the name of God, to sing forth his praises. He had, he had a thought in mind. He articulated it and expressed it in song and praise to God. He was engaged. I'd like to read a little quote here if I can find it. And this is a quote from Rick Warren. You may not recognize that name or you may. He's very popular in that he has a major uh, mega church in California. He's a pastor and his influence has gone throughout the nation and, and even far beyond our nation He taught, uh, he's written a lot of books. The Purpose Driven Church was one of the most popular ones. And one reason why I'm quoting him is because not only has his philosophy gone throughout, but he directly has influenced and impacted tens of thousands of churches. Not just people, but churches have deliberately taken up and studied his teachings and doctrines. So what he says has been widely accepted. And while he may speak um, in a sense for what is popularly accepted in our churches, he's also a very major proponent of it. And in his, uh, in his book, The Purpose Driven Church, he has a chapter on selecting your music. And he says this. He says, a song can often touch people in a way that a sermon can't. Music can bypass intellectual barriers and take the message straight to the heart. Now let's ask ourselves, is that really what God intended for music? Amen, brother. That is not what God intended. God intended for our spirit and mind to be engaged, not bypassed. And that is exactly what he's promoting is that it may be advantageous to just bypass the intellectual barriers. Uh Uh-oh, that should be a big red flag because what needs to go past or bypass your intellectual barriers? Because when it does that, it also bypasses your discernment. That's just out the window. You need to have your mind engaged to think and consider whether these things be so. Now the fact that he and others have clearly uh, adopted the world's type of music, there is a component in rock music that does exactly what he said. It bypasses the intellectual barriers. And it does this by its very nature in that Rock music incorporates a heavy beat which becomes, you could say, intoxicating or mildly hypnotic. And when you are put in a hypnotic state and your body senses take over, your subconscious can be impressed. And and these messages, as he says, go directly to the heart they go directly to your, to your heart and mind because you are in a semi-hypnotic state. And we may talk about that a bit more 
uh, this afternoon. But just understand that that is a dangerous element of the world's music, is that they attempt, attempt to inject feelings and philosophies and impressions by bypassing your intellect. And then the last point I have here for a characteristic of godly music is that the music should be holy. Holy, unspotted by the world. Maybe that should be self-evident if all the other points are in place here about it being an expression to the Lord of praise, teaching and admonishing, clear and easy to understand, and so on. But here is the great error that the CCM proponents um, do is that they take from the world, and our music should be holy. It should be separate. It should be unspotted. By the world. Jude verse 23 says, And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now, the CCM proponents have openly and unashamedly copied from the world. They don't make a secret of the fact that they've borrowed the world's music. In fact, they boast that they have reclaimed it from the world, as though somehow God was the origin of this music, and they'll even say that. God is the the origin of all music. Well, no. God has given man the ability to be creative and to... If you will create, and we might say, well, it's just a rearrangement of what God made, and that's true. But nevertheless, men express themselves. They choose what to express and, and create this music. So the concept that any and all music is, is made by God and we just need to reclaim it, that is a false philosophy. And if you study their teaching and doctrines, they will openly admit to have borrowed from the world. So then the question comes, are we going to just copy then from the CCM crowd and their music that they write, their lyrics and and their philosophies, are we just going to borrow that without checking it thoroughly? And if so, how are we going to remain unspotted from the world? And that is really the heart of my concern here today, that we keep our music unspotted from the world. And we need to judge it carefully for its origins and not just accept it uncritically. Back to the illustration I gave earlier about plucking the weeds out of the ditch. You know, that is so much how I see it today is that these these things are scattered abroad in the field, if you will, and 
maybe this plant here or this one over here, the one in the ditch is not, it hasn't ruined the crop yet, but unless we're able to see its potential and the, uh, and the devastating effects that it may have if allowed to remain, those are the things we need to be vigilant for and be able to be able to discern. Speaking of discerning by our intellect and not just by our feelings. Let me give you a little personal uh, experience. I didn't always have the discernment and integrity I should have had in music. I never got caught up in rock music. It never did appeal to me. Uh, but that's not totally why I rejected. I rejected because of its wrong effects. And I remember many years ago when I was your age listening to teaching against rock music. And at that time, it seemed like, well, rock music was primarily just what the world did out there, and of course, the Christians should stay away. But it was just the beginning of what was called Christian rock and would have been the origins of the CCM music that I'm speaking of today. But in that day, when I was your age, the evangelical church in America almost entirely rejected the idea that that was okay. Almost entirely. Now people on a personal level were beginning to take it in. They were getting involved and, and that was okay and I think that's why the door opened for it then eventually to be adopted almost wholesale across our land as acceptable in the church of God. But it's not acceptable to God. It's the music of the world. And, um, but anyway, back to my, um, my account here. I, one thing that did appeal to me was southern gospel music. And If you wonder where I stand on the issue of Southern Gospel music, let me just explain that right now. I would say that most, 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 most of Southern Gospel music is not very profitable for you spiritually. And a lot of it is outright damaging to you spiritually. And so I'm going to recommend you just stay away from it all. Now, I will admit there might be a few that are not that bad. Uh, there are certainly some songs that we might find acceptable. But in general, the style and type of music is not profitable for us spiritually. And as I said, it can be outright dangerous. And one of the reasons of that is that the gospel music of today is not what it was 70 years ago. They have borrowed very heavily from the CCM uh, 
group and the music of this world, the beat has gotten heavier and, and they incorporate a lot more of the syncopation and so on. But nevertheless, some of those elements were there. But I, when I was your age, it did appeal to me a bit, and I listened to it some, more than I should have. And I enjoyed it. And I didn't really realize all that it was doing to me. What I thought it was doing to me felt good. And so, hey, you know, at least they've got, this is gospel songs. I'm not listening to the world's music, I thought. Now, country music, in a sense, I was exposed to that some. I never really took it up personally, but I was exposed to far more than was healthy for me, work situations and so on. And, hey, I, my flesh could enjoy that probably too, but my spirit didn't. As a believer, I realized I cannot give myself to these things, and you'd hear these lyrics, and, and they, they burn a groove in your mind. You know, you can... And, uh, you know, these 35, 40 years later, I can still sing some of those lines. They, it seems like they, yeah, I've forgotten a lot of it, and I don't try to bring it to mind, but now and then it would come back. So just, I give that as a warning that what you give yourself over to will burn a track in your mind that may be long-lived. One of the albums I had, and this was a, this was a well-known group, the Chuck Wagon Gang, I believe it was. I don't know, maybe only some of you old ones in the back know what I'm talking about. But anyway, they would have been considered a fairly, well, kind of mainstream, but more conservative even in the, contemporary, in the southern gospel realm. But as I began to, well, let me back up a little. When I first got this album, I knew in my mind that this was not the best. I decided it was acceptable, but I yet knew in my heart it was not the best. But I listened to it, and I learned to enjoy it, and, and uh, it had a nice beat to it and I, I liked it but coming back to what I said about its effect on me and I began to realize as, as my eyes were enlightened to this thing in music and I realized that what it's doing to me is not good but the point that really struck me one day One of the songs they had had these lyrics. It was the song about, it, the lyrics went like this. Bring back the songs we used to sing. Beautiful songs with an old-fashioned ring. Where the spirit came down in every refrain. Bring back the songs we used to sing. And then they, as I recall, part of the, the rest of the chorus or whatever, was they would sing strains of uh, precious memories, how they linger and, 
maybe several other hymns. One day the, uh, the irony and the hypocrisy of this struck me. It's like, well, now wait a minute. Do they really mean what they're saying? And if they do, why are they singing this song? Why not take this off the album and put one of those hymns in there? You know, Amazing Grace. And then I considered the rest of the songs in the album. None of them were the old-fashioned hymns. They were all more modern. Something catchy, something that captured your mind and attention. Every one of them. Suddenly I was like, they really don't mean a thing they're saying on this song. If they did, they'd do it. But they won't do it because there's no money in it. They're not going to. They're not going to bring back the songs we used to sing. They're not going to bring down or bring the songs where the spirit comes down in every refrain. It's incompatible with what they're doing and promoting and, and what, they, what they are. If we're going to bring back the songs where the spirit came down in every refrain, then this whole thing has to go. That was my conclusion, and so I put it away. Now, you may think this is very simple, but what I'm going to suggest is that you consider your music the same way. Is it really doing what it ought to for you? Is it promoting the Spirit of God? Is it promoting reverence and holiness? And sad to say, there's... Too much of that in the southern gospel realm where they really don't live what they profess. There is, yes, profession in the lips. And I concluded that this particular song was nothing more than a nostalgic feel-good lip service to something they had no intention of doing in reality. And let's not be caught in that snare where, yeah, we pop in the tape. Oh, it has um, well, the CD. And it has all these catchy lyrics, these, these catchy phrases. They run grooves in our mind. And, and the music is, is uh, you know, gets us going and feels good. And, but. What is it doing? If it's just an empty profession, that's what's going to get ingrained in our minds. We'll come to the place where we think that an empty profession is acceptable. We'll think that it's not a problem, but it is a problem. God wants us to engage our mind and our heart. And music should not be just a thing of entertainment. I, yeah, entertainment. It opens up a whole other subject. Let's see where I should go here. Let me talk a bit about Paul's manner of preaching the gospel. And how does this relate 
Well, if songs and hymns are a presentation of the gospel, and many CCM people will will claim that that's what they're doing. They're proclaiming the gospel because their music has some Bible words in it. Well, in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 2 through 6, and you can follow along there, um, 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 2 through 6, Paul says, but even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as ye know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts." For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Now just consider applying this uh, manner of preaching to the presentation of gospel music. You will find that if, if these elements were important for the preaching of the gospel, then so it is for the singing of music. But just note here, he says in verse 3, Our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel. Very important part of our music or broader than that is we have been entrusted with the gospel so our presentation needs to be in accordance with God's principles and he says even so we speak not as pleasing men oh wow isn't that what music is intended to do is to be pleasing to our ears but if that's the only criteria by which we judge music we're going to be led astray. Music has to be more than just pleasing to the ear. In fact, Paul is saying, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. Now, I'm not saying that music should be unpleasant to our ears, godly music. I think godly music should be. Uh, it should speak peace. It should speak comfort and joy and all those things, good things. But the intent is not just to please men, but God. Further, he says, Neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness. No price for our album. No price for our gospel. We're not charging you. We're giving it freely. Ooh, try to apply that to the CCM. Okay. God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory. Oh. Nor of men sought we glory. And I hope you're not involved in this, but out there in this contemporary Christian gospel music, 
There is so much seeking after glory. There is so much seeking after fame and seeking after fortune. In fact, you could say that's the driving force behind much of it. Fame, fortune, honor of men. We don't want to draw from that fountain. It will be corrupted. Okay. Let's go yet to an example of hedonistic worship. Exodus chapter 32. This may be a a bit negative, it certainly is, but it will open up some principles which we may talk about some more in the second session. Exodus 32 is the account of how the children of Israel made themselves calves to worship saying they didn't know what happened to Moses because he was up on the mountain and had been up there for 40 days, I guess. They said they didn't know what happened to him. And asked Aaron to make some calves to worship as the gods that took them up out of Egypt. Now let's think a moment that when God came down on Mount Sinai, he himself later said that this is one of the key events in history. Okay? God coming down on Mount Sinai was an unequaled event. The people should have been in the utmost reverence and attention to the fact that God himself came down on Mount Sinai and was communicating with Moses and trans. Uh, furring or giving to Moses the Ten Commandments and the, and the Law and the Commandments. But what did they do? They made themselves idols. And you know, I think the account, Just I'm going to just kind of go outline the account here of how they made these idols and it says they... Uh, Let's read it there in verse 6. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And we find out later that play included singing. But they went about these festivities. They gave honor to these idols and they rose up to play. They had music going. And they even made themselves naked. We find that in verse 25. But Moses, being up on the mount, he comes down and and he meets Joshua and he asks, what is this going on? Joshua says he hears uh, the sound of shouting and he thinks it's the sound of war. But Moses said, um, it is not the voice of them that shout for master, verse 18, neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but the noise of them that sing do I hear. And of course, he was very distraught. He threw down the 
uh, tables of stone and and then he reproved the people and he broke up the the calves there, ground it to powder and threw it in the water. But he also had to plead with the Lord for the for the people's sake, that the Lord wouldn't destroy them. Now, several things I'd like to mention here in this account. Back in verse 5, it says, And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. A feast to the Lord. Wow, what a mixture. They made golden calves, but Aaron said it's a feast to the Lord. And I don't understand really how, I mean, what what did he mean? God saw this as rank idolatry. But what I'm going to note is that there was a mixture. Aaron said a feast to the Lord. But God hated all of it. And to what extent Moses mixed in a honor of the Lord. I mean they brought sacrifices. They brought offerings and and all that. Which would have been common. You know in their worship of the Lord. Sacrifice and offerings. and, And I don't know. Did they somehow think that this was still acceptable to the Lord? I don't know. But they said... They brought these offerings, they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And I don't know what all that meant, but it was very sensual and very heathen and very, very um, disappointing to the Lord for the way the people just went their own way. Well... The other thing to note is how Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted and he said, there is a noise of war in the camp. No, Moses said, it's not the voice of them that shout for mastery as they might if they had won a victory. It's neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome. They're not crying in terror as though the enemy is overcoming them. They're singing. Sound of singing. Why did Joshua so mistake the sound? It would suggest that it was very discordant, not pleasant at all, jarring in its senses, and pretty good description of rock music today. I don't know what kind of instruments they had. I don't know what kind of band they had playing or what they were doing, but it was not a harmonious peaceful, joyful. It was not the sweet psalmist of Israel's creations. It was discordant. And lastly, what I'd note is verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies... Naked. That has been the hallmark of ungodly and devilish music since that day. 
You can go down through history and you'll find time and time again that when people give themselves over to these kind of sensual things in music, they make themselves naked. And not just that, they indulge in all kinds of immorality that that nakedness suggests. And the music of our day is no different. It had its origins in that heathen uh, practice and rock music. Some have said it's, it's a, a musical form of pornography. That is, well, I'm talking about the rock music of our day. It is simply musical pornography. And it is changing society. Even secular, non-Christian people are saying that. It is changing the way people think and the way they act. And it has led to immorality uh, in a major, major way in our nation. How then can it be used in a worship service? I think God hates it just as much as he did back then when they claimed to have a feast to the Lord and rose up to play and had this discordant music and made themselves naked. That spirit that has been borrowed from the world and put into the CCM music, that has brought that same spirit into the church. There are places where this music is openly promoted, even the flagship churches of our nation, where fornication is not even just not spoken of, it's openly encouraged by the leaders. It is simply astounding and very sad that they have come to that, but it's reality. Immorality has come into the churches and it's because that philosophy has rode in on the backs of this, uh, of this music. Well, I must close. I think I'm over time there. We'll just continue again this afternoon.